we come to you through Christ in the Spirit, and we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, and you enlarge our hearts to run in the way of your testimonies. And, Lord, we do pray with the song, Show Us Christ, and may we be caught up in considering Jesus this morning, that we might run our race looking to Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith. In his name, amen. Um, just off script, just by way of introduction, I, I travel the world a lot. I teach in a lot of different places. Um, I teach, and we'll, we'll do a little Q&A here after, after the last songs. teach in a variety of different jungle contexts, desert contexts, um, Bush, Alaska, out in the cold, and with light, power that works, power that doesn't work, um, underground, quietly, in, in caves and fields. And the people of God, we have more in common than we have different, and we are united by the blood of Christ. And we have a new bloodline, we have a new DNA, and um, we may speak different languages, we may have different ethnic backgrounds and cultures, but there's something beautiful about the body of Christ when we unite around us. And I can preach in different languages and different places, but there's some there's a palpable difference between... Um, I mean, there's really two different kinds of people in the world. There are Adamites and there are Christians, and we are of the family of Christ, and it's it's an amazing bond. And to be sure, you know, some of us have different talents and different abilities and different gifts, but at the end of the day, I'm just a person, you're just a person, and we're all here for Christ, and we're not here to listen to somebody more important or um, not not that God has favorites. He has no partiality. He He loves us all the same, and He has... He, I hope this message encourages you that, that God has plans for you to bless you, to, to sustain you in the darkest of times, and that we're not living to build a kingdom on this earth, but we're living for the king and bearing witness to the kingdom that he's bringing in his own way, in his own time. And until then, we hang on and we trust that, that God is sovereign over it all and he's got good plans for us. So um, I'm reminded of the quote from Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of, dis- of darkness. It was the spring of hope. And it was the winter of despair. And I, I find that these opening words of A Tale of Two Cities, the classic, it well describes the ninth century B.C. in the land of Israel. And indeed, it, it really does describe our own time in A.D. 2021. When you look at the era of the ninth century B.C. in, in the book of First Kings, um, you, you see mass dysfunction in the land of Israel. And the king of Israel at the time, his name was Ahab. And uh, his reign was actually the turning point in Israel's history, which is clear from the fact that six chapters at the end of First Kings, they're dedicated to his reign alone. But this transitional moment in Israel's history was the lowest point since the period of the judges. One writer says it looked like the Antichrist had arrived early, ahead of time. But if your main concerns in life are for the economy, prosperity, and overall social stability, these days didn't seem so bad. 
Ahab had reigned for 22 years. No coups, no insurrections, no assassination attempts, relative stability in the land of Israel at the time. And then he, he uh, underwent a shrewd marriage with the Phoenician princess Jezebel. She was very ambitious. Um, she was very pagan. This shrewd marriage alliance secured unlimited access and privilege to the, to the prized Phoenician seaports. So put, put, in that, put that in um, normal terms. That guaranteed a booming economy, in other words. It was a business deal. Business was booming in Israel in these days. The economy was making record strides. People of Israel were fat and happy. They're even described as that in 1 Kings 16. There's no felt need for the old school God of Israel's forefathers in this day and age. This was the day of progress, human flourishing. Ahab, verse 30 of chapter 16 of 1 Kings, says, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, including the judges. Ahab's obsession with Baal worship, serving and worshiping Baal, building an altar and a temple for Baal, building a huge idol to Baal, angered the Lord more than any other king had. And his marriage to the Baal mistress Jezebel was a major headlong leap into uninhibited rebellion against God. Moreover, Ahab rebuilt Jericho. So what's, what's so important about that? Why that seemingly insignificant piece of trivia in the text? Well, because after the destruction of Jericho, Joshua had declared a curse over anybody who would seek to rebuild that city. The curse forbade anybody from rebuilding it, which Ahab, certainly with, with the best historians in the land, would have known willfully did it with no fear of God before him. So it's upon this black backdrop that Ahab and Jezebel, they're like in the narrative, they're like the evil uh, antagonists. They set the stage for a shift in the providences of God, something unforeseen, something that comes out of nowhere. So if they're the dark, rebellious, antagonist in the story who's the righteous protagonist well enter first Kings 17 this is very first verse of first Kings 17 abruptly introduces some obscure prophet of whom we've never heard before his name is Elijah and his name means my God is Yahweh unlike every other scriptural introduction of a major character in the history of redemption. The details of Elijah's resume and pedigree and family of origin are obscure. They're unnamed. They go without mention at all. It's done in, with the purpose of focusing on his prophetic message. He becomes identified with his message and not his past or his pedigree. One writer pastorally fleshes out the significance of the suddenness of Elijah's appearing. This writer says, 
For to see Elijah appear so suddenly, verse 1 of chapter 17, all of a sudden he appears, this writer says, this reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in some unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God has always his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure his own cause will never fail. That's very encouraging. In other words, there is a man in Israel, and his name is El-Li-Yah. My God is Yah. And his message is what marks him. His message is what distinguishes him from all the other prophets of Baal. And what is the first mention of his message? It's a rebuke to Ahab's covenant-breaking. It's a pronouncement of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy upon Ahab. Elijah shows himself to be a true prophet of God because his prediction of drought, for instance, based upon God's covenant curses, it comes to pass. Elijah surges with passion for Yahweh worship. So, what's so special about Elijah? What sets him apart? What makes him one of a kind? Elijah is recorded as a transitional figure in the history of the kings and the prophets. And one reason you know he's a transitional figure is because, like Moses before, Elijah's ministry is actually marked by signs and wonders. So, just this is, in, this is helpful to understand. In redemptive history, whenever there is an, an epic or a season of uh, signs and wonders, usually it revolves around a major shift in God's redemptive purposes. Typically, um, it's, it's accompanied with a, a, season, a short-term season of these signs and wonders. For instance, consider Moses' miracles in Exodus. Jesus' miraculous three-year ministry, the apostles' miraculous ministry in establishing the New Testament church in Acts. And in this instance in Israel's history, the prophetic office is being inaugurated through Elijah, and it's just ramping up. So as Moses represents the law to the people, Elijah represents the prophetic word to the people. The law is like the, it's like the covenant contract, and the prophets are like the legal attorneys that apply the law to the context of Israel, um, warning them of their rebellion against the contract or, or guaranteeing them blessings based upon the contract of the covenant. And so this is the inauguration of the prophetic age, starting with Elijah, more or less. Some of those miraculous records of the life of Elijah, on numerous occasions... These are some examples. They entail the hearing of God's voice directly, miraculous provisions of bread in the wilderness, just like who else had bread in the wilderness? 
Moses, Jesus, and birds to eat meat in the wilderness, just like quail in the wilderness. Water, miraculous water, like the rock that was split open in the wilderness under Moses. Pattern after pattern after pattern, Elijah is picking up the patterns of the inauguration of the law with Moses. He's He's ramping up with the prophets here. Three years after the famine ended, the famine that Elijah predicted, Elijah boldly goes to Ahab, this corrupt king. And during this famine, apparently, Jezebel had killed all the prophets of God that were remaining that she could find. But there were a hundred that safely had hidden away somewhere in the wilderness away from her wrath. Jezebel and Ahab, they, they are the Old Testament foreshadow of the beast and the false prophet. Knowing that his life and his career and his security were in danger, nevertheless, Elijah goes to Ahab, summons him. He calls Ahab. You know, in, in, in Hebrew, they might say quite the chutzpah, quite the, you know, the, the boldness. In, in, other, in some ways, he is the most wanted man in Israel, Elijah is. He is a national security threat. He is Ahab's fall guy, his scapegoat, his patsy. The nation hates Elijah. He hates the name. The nation hates the name Elijah because the word on the street is that Elijah brought out the three-year famine. It's his fault. He's being slandered for something that's not even his fault. And you can hear Ahab's hatred for Elijah and Elijah's boldness in their interaction in 1 Kings 18. So it says this, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah says, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed all the bowels. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So, Okay, that's what happens. The prophets of Baal gather at Mount Carmel and Elijah instructs them. In verse 24, he says, Okay, you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of Yahweh. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So this is kind of like the Old Testament version of Doc Holliday at the gunfight of O.K. Carmel. That's, that's kind of how I think of it. The, the prophets of Baal, cry out over and over and over hours and hours and hours and Elijah just sits back and he kind of mocks them he teases them and after most of the day has passed Elijah takes his turn he pours 12 jars of water over the altar so that it's just spilling over with water it is saturated with water then Elijah calls out to the Lord to make his name known And God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice, burns up the water, and the people who saw it fall on their faces and declare that the Lord is God. And then Elijah himself seizes all the prophets of Baal and slaughters them. After this savage massacre, that's what it was, it was a massacre, Elijah is a force to be reckoned with. He makes David's mighty men look like junior varsity. 
He is the man in Israel. However, this massive victory didn't turn out the way Elijah had hoped. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 19, Ahab tells Jezebel, and she is raving mad, and she swears she will kill Elijah by the next day. So, in a very bizarre turn of events, Elijah takes off for the wilderness. It says this in verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked or hot bread on hot stones, a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And then verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, and the Lord was not in the wind. And then the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. And they've killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Abel Mechelah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to bow, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, just let's ask some interpretive questions about this, some observations. What's so amazing about this account? Is it amazing that this powerful, mighty man of God who had just conquered the prophets of Baal, who called fire out of heaven, this prophet of prophets, he cowers in fear of Jezebel? That Elijah runs from Jezebel is very out of character, especially after confronting Ahab to his face. 
after raising a child from the dead, after predicting a famine, after seeing God provide food through miraculous bread, birds calling fire out of heaven, slaughtering 850 priests of Baal by himself, praying for rain, outrunning Ahab's chariot. Where's the disconnect? Why is he all of a sudden running for fear of one person? Instead of writing him off as some sort of emotionally unstable, manic depressive type of a person, the text gives clues that he was driven more by convictions than chemistry. Something deeper is going on here in Elijah's soul. Elijah is wrestling with God's purposes. Elijah's noble expectations of turning the nation back to Yahweh apparently don't fit God's timing and plans. After he flees to the wilderness, he rests under a tree. There in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord, it's the angel of the Lord, ministers to him. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the identity of the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Messiah. Isn't it interesting that he didn't just send one of his myriads of angels, just any of the angels, to serve Elijah, Michael, Gabriel, somebody else? The angel of the Lord came to serve him. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't it beautiful that the divine pre-incarnate Messiah, the angel of the Lord, himself stoops down to serve Elijah by preparing some hot bread and cool water while he slept under the shade of a tree. It's as though the picture of this angel of the Lord foreshadows him as a servant to God's people, coming not to be served, but to serve. Now, after the angel of the Lord revives Elijah's depleted health, with food and drink, Elijah goes where? He goes to Mount Horeb. So again, why is that significant? Why is that important? Why not just say a mountain? Why not just say the wilderness? Because Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. The same place where the covenant was both given and broken in Exodus 32 and 33. And how long was he at Mount Sinai? 40 days and 40 nights. This is the exact time of Israel's unfaithfulness, Moses' intercession. Moreover, what other prophet someday would spend 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness? And in showing his glory to Moses, it says in Exodus on Sinai, it says Yahweh passed by Moses, same verb, same word, and now Yahweh passes by Elijah on the same mountain. There are intentional connections being made here. Elijah knows he is God's man in God's mountain. He spent 40 days, 40 nights in Sinai. It echoes the ministry of Moses. Elijah is so passionate for the covenant law of God and Yahweh's honor, that he goes back to the most holy place in his mind, that sacred place where Moses saw the glory of Yahweh. Maybe the last place that Jezebel's 
religion had not defiled. He goes there out of passion for Yahweh worship. It dominates his soul. He is jealous. He is zealous for Yahweh's name. And he is afraid that if, if Jezebel kills him, the light will be snuffed out of Israel. The Lord asks him why he's at Sinai. And you can hear Elijah's passion for God's name in verse 10, which he again repeats in verse 14. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed the prophets. And I, only I, am left. And they seek to take my life away from the start. He is portrayed as the man of God in Israel. The only one who stands up for Yahweh. Even in the literal face of the most powerful man in the land. Elijah has one holy passion, just like John Knox would say, Give me Scotland or I die. Well, Elijah would say, Give me national revival or I die. His motives are righteous. They're good. They're certainly pleasing to God. Indeed, his, his self-denying passion to glorify Yahweh through bringing God-centered revival, let, let's just be honest, it's probably far superior to, to most of our life passions. He is a man of a mission. He is a man of a message. And nothing will divert him from that. He, this is what his whole life is about. It's about the glory of Yahweh in the land. Though grateful for the few who did come to Yahweh worship at Mount Carmel, Elijah was despairing. He's discouraged that his ministry is not more successful. He is discouraged that there was not national revival that broke out at the greatest miracle of his ministry thus far, the pouring out of fire from heaven. He's discouraged that the royal family refuses to repent. For such an astonishing miracle, there was such minuscule return on investment. Instead of rebuking Elijah for being a whiny, emotional prophet who just can't get his act together, the Lord, this, the Lord who previously provides food and water for him, cares for him while he slept, that same merciful Lord now shows Elijah his power in the tornado, in the earthquake, and in the fire, and God speaks to him in a low voice. The Lord gave Elijah instructions to anoint Jehu as king, Elisha as Elijah's prophetic successor. And then the Lord gives Elijah fresh courage to press on, assuring him that the Lord still had 7,000 of the remnant unknown who refused to bow the knee to the wicked culture around them. See, God is the one who secures and sustains his people for a great salvation. And now, fast forward eight and a half centuries. Eight and a half centuries later, knowing the deepest desire of the hearts of his servants, God says to Elijah in heaven, let's just imagine, hey Elijah, I want you to go down and meet someone. Take Moses with you. Go down to that mountain down there. Moses and Elijah, two servants, passionate for Yahweh's name. The Old Testament representative mediator and the Old Testament representative prophet. They go down and they wait on a high mountain. 
suddenly in their midst. The angel of the Lord shows up, but in a man's body, with the bearded face of a Jewish rabbi. His glory, that they knew as the second person of the Trinity 30 years earlier, is now revealed in the gritty face of a man. And there with him are Peter, James, and John, who have only known the human face of this Jewish rabbi. They now see his radiance of the divine glory that he had before the foundation of the world, the glory that passed by Moses and Elijah on Mount Sinai. For the first time, Elijah meets the better prophet who speaks a better word and turns the hearts of his people to Yahweh worship, who writes his law on their hearts. Elijah's hopes and prayers are finally realized in the face of Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Messiah is God's plan A and has been all along and still is today. Here's, here's the application for us. In, in a lot of ways, Elijah's story is our story. We have deep, true, pure desires, good desires and dreams that we've always wanted for His glory. There are those who seem to go from one victory to another, never struggling, who seem to rarely grieve where you where you secretly battle that family whose children grow up loving the lord marrying wisely finding secure jobs all living in the same location that friend who has so much energy and never has health problems that missionary biography that everybody talks about is the life that god truly blesses if you're really surrendered to him that minister who's always talking about how awesome ministry is and how much they just they love how everything's going and how much God has blessed them with so many good things and so many fun vacations and so much great support. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Amazing house, amazing family, amazing marriage, amazing vacations, amazing job, amazing devotions, amazing health, amazing food. And then there's you, and you struggle. You struggle to walk in victory over those secret sins. You're ashamed of your entertaining addictions. Maybe you wonder if your kids will ever respect you again. You, you wish you had spent your life differently in the Lord's service. You, you wish you had parents who love God. You grieve over the decadence of your culture, of your city, of your country, when you've poured your life out in its service. And you just want to give up when you've spent yourself. And you've given your all, and you've seen no tangible return on investment. You are jealous for God and His glory but he doesn't seem to come through on his end of the bargain. When Jesus called you to pick up your cross and follow him, you had no idea how inglorious, how tedious, how mundane such a calling could be. You would never say this to anybody, but maybe you secretly wish that God would just end your life and take you home. As Paul says, for we know in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning with pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan in inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience now if that's you that inner groaning desire for final deliverance, you're not alone. That is the normal Christian life. Knowing that we would be tempted to give up 
and give in to the constant anxiety and pain and distress in this life, Paul calls Christians to look beyond the pain and hope in the dawning glory of God. For he says elsewhere, in, or earlier in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So what does he mean that this glory that's coming isn't worth comparing to our sufferings? He clarifies in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose hope or lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, by faith, we look back and trust in the things that Christ has done. And then by faith, we look forward to what God has promised and hope in His faithfulness based upon His fulfillment of the promises in the past. Resting in that future-oriented faith. From start to finish, it's a grace race. It's all of grace, and it's all of God. We are saved by God, in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God in Christ secures us and sustains us for a great salvation. So like Elijah, the reason you do not lose heart is because God loves you and wields all His might for you to save you. You are saved by, by God in Christ, from God, for God. His enduring love, His kingly power to save, they overflow from who He is. He is infinite, meaning He's measureless. He's without measure. He is immutable, meaning He never changes. He is uh, eternal, meaning He's outside of time. This God loves you and has always loved you. And He has covenanted Himself with His blood to maintain your salvation to the very end. And he, will, he has secured you, and He will sustain you through it all. And I love, I love this. This, is so, this verse is so grounding because whenever you are tempted to think that God is fickle, that He changes His mind based upon your performance or lack of performance, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you're not consumed. I don't change. I remain the same. And I have loved you. And there's nothing you can do. No performance, no mission trip, no ministry, no list of obedience to rules that you can keep to improve God's favor and love for you. And there's nothing you can do to detract from it. Consider those experiences of devastating darkness, merciless disappointments, nightmarish sadness, unremitting pain, and you describe the burden you carry as unbearable and overwhelming. The Bible does validate the human experience of pain, but it describes it as a light momentary affliction. So how is that possible? It's because the 
glory of the resurrection is not even worth comparing to our sufferings. And it's beyond comparison, Second Corinthians says, to our sufferings. So what does that mean? How do you get your mind around what the text is saying? What is the weight of glory that today Elijah and the great cloud of witnesses who have gone in faith before us, what is it that they now enjoy? Well, 1 Peter 1.4 describes it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, guarded, defended, secured in heaven for you. In heaven and then in the resurrection, there will never, 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 never be a moment of remorse, regret, discontentment, envy, jealousy, discouragement, sadness, slander, anger, trauma, nightmares, or anything that crushes our souls in this life. Heaven will be so good that we won't even recall to mind the bad memories of this life. God says in Isaiah 65:17, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come into your mind. Elsewhere, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 54.4, it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood, you'll remember no more. Any recollection of this life in heaven and in the new earth will be like a fading dream. Waking up after a dream, as we go through our day, what happens? That dream kind of fades. We, we have maybe a hint that we had a dream. Some part of our day we might remember a, a fading memory of the dream. But in light of the reality of our daily living, any reminiscence of a dream is trivial and irrelevant. It's immaterial. It's inconsequential. And so the love of God for us in Christ will swallow up it will, it will exhaust all that is momentary and transient in this life, including our sufferings. God lovingly leverages all that he is for our good in the resurrection. The weight that feels so burdensome and so crushing and so momentary is, is so momentary in our affliction. It will now be translated as a heavy weight of glory that is beyond measure, that is never changing, that is never ending. What's interesting is in the Hebrew, the word for glory is weight or heavy. Paul is translating a common Hebrew idea into Greek, basically saying the heavy pains in this life should point us away from them to look forward to the unseen promises of heaven, the weight of glory or the heaviness of glory, or literally the weight of weight. It's, it's, he's using emphasis or a superlative to, to drive home the point that this is a heavy glory. This is a lovingly crushing glory. It is so immense that you can't think about anything else. So when we get to heaven, never can we fully fathom, never can we fully understand the depths of God's wisdom and His goodness and His holiness and His love 
and His power and His justice and His grace, every day in glory will get better and better and better and better and better. Never will we arrive at fully knowing, comprehending, and enjoying God's love for us. Ever. At the end of every day, if you know, imagine there were days at the end of every day, you'll put your head down on your heavenly pillow and you say, that was the best day of my life. I can't wait for tomorrow. God, the Holy One, loves even me. And for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. Heaven is the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit's holy perfect, unchanging, eternal love. A land of heavy, glorious love in Christ. So that day after day, age after age, you will be weighed down with wave after wave after wave of happiness and benevolence and kindness and love and goodness. Triune God. So much so that if you were to experience it today in your not yet glorified bodies and, and minds, you would cry with heaving gasps, I can't take it anymore, Lord. Please stay your hand. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description majesty enthroned above. So in heaven and on the new earth, time will become inconsequential. We'll all know, we all know what this is like. We all do. When you are caught up in the moment of something that you enjoy so much, we lose track of time, don't we? It's, it's, this is the picture of timelessness in heaven. Think of watching your favorite team, let's say, win the Super Bowl or the World Series if the Mariners are your favorite team, well, it's going to be a while, probably. But imagine the year you fell in love, your engagement, your wedding, your honeymoon, the, your, the birth of your first child, birth of your grandchild, scoring the winning points in a championship game, performing flawlessly at your senior recital, running across the finish line of a marathon, enjoying Christmas Eve and Christmas morning with your grandkids under your roof, in those blissful moments, time ceases to exist. It stops. You are caught up in the sublime. You're caught up in the heavenly, the otherworldly joys. That in those moments, nobody worries about what happens tomorrow. No one cares to recall what happened yesterday. No one, no one checks their watch. You're living in the moment because it's so otherworldly. It's so beautiful. Those heavenly moments swallow us up and remind us that we were made for someone otherworldly, pure, perfect, holy, and joyful, and transcendent. In heaven, nobody will say to C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien, you had a better imagination than God does. Nobody will say that. It will be, it will be fantastic. It will be beyond imagination, beyond the possibilities of imagination in this life. On the new earth, the sounds of God's people will be sounds of laughter and singing. Never will you hear crying 
or complaining. On the new earth, you'll have a reputation and a job that you love. Isn't it interesting how many careers and jobs we will not have on the new earth? There'll be no doctors. There'll be no lawyers. There'll be no insurance agents. There'll be no military. There'll be no police. There'll be no mechanics. There'll be no diplomats. No counselors. No pharmacists. No no firemen. No FBI. Nobody to fix broken things. The arts and the sciences and the humanities and engineering and space exploration and the like will abound and flourish and resound to the glory of the goodness of God for His people. Age after age, you will enjoy God to the fullest, uninhibited enjoyment of God. And like Elijah, we can get up in the morning, endure another day in the thankless, heavy, mundane, discouraging world in which we are exiles and sojourners, strangers passing through. How do we keep going when our prayers and God's promises rarely seem to match up when we pray and pray and pray for God to move and it just seems like all you hear is quiet the silence of God is all you hear the Bible says be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain it's what you know and who you trust that makes all the difference. And how do we know God's promises will come to pass? His purposes will be fulfilled, and He will not let us go, but bring us safely to glory. The Bible says, I love this verse. This has got me through so much in the last couple of years. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole soul spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case you're doubting that God's still going to pull this off, he who calls you is faithful. And then just in case you're still doubting, he will surely do it. I want to close by encourage you by reading from um, the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. As, as we contemplate our great inheritance in Christ and all those unmet expectations that we have in this life, those dreams, those good, holy desires that we have for God's honor and God's service and God's glory in this life that are not materialized in our lifetime, that those, those return on investments that are completely empty, says this, and he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. This is Aslan. He He no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had ever read before, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better 
than the one before. Father, would you please seal our hearts with an expectant hope of glory, that we would be encouraged like Elijah to press on, that you have your remnant even here among us, and that we would, we would wait to see the face of the true prophet and the true lawgiver. For Jesus is our judge, Jesus is our lawgiver, Jesus is our king, and Jesus will save us. And it's to him we look and pray that we would persevere in faith, trusting him. In Jesus' name, amen.